the last several weeks, we've been looking at a series of messages that I've called Abraham, the father of all who believe. And today I have the distinct privilege of preaching to you from one of the most pivotal passages in the Word of God, certainly one of the most pivotal passages in the Old Testament. Uh, so let's stand together and we'll uh, just start in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. And indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. See, the story of Abraham is God's exhibit A of what it means to walk by faith and to live by faith. God put it in a real person's life so that we could see it not as an abstract principle, but as, as it is in reality, as a man, a real person, lives it out by faith. So many things we've seen. We've seen that faith, living by faith, means going without knowing. Uh, it means that uh, sometimes we don't always uh, get to see things the way we'd like to see them. And we have to live uh, a long time sometimes before uh, that we actually experience then what God has promised. In a way, we're going to be seeing that this morning. If we learn that our faith will be tested, and that's important because it's often been pointed out that a faith that hasn't been tested uh, can't be trusted. Uh, and we all know that. I don't have time to talk about that a lot. Uh, we saw how that Abraham failed the test. Uh, we all fail tests, the faith test, perhaps most of all. But his failure was not final. He went back to Bethel, back to the house of God, and never underestimate. The power of that decision to get your family, to get yourself back in church, back in the house of God. That's what Bethel means, the house of God. We last saw Abraham win an incredible victory over powerful armies from the east. And with only a handful by comparison of men. He was able to win a mighty, mighty victory and deliver his family. We saw him then encountering the two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, and how that he made the right choice. Now, Abraham spent ten years in the promised land. Ten years. By the time we find him in our text, he's getting a bit impatient. I think we saw that, and we'll see it more clearly as we go on. Abram's walking in victory. He's growing in wealth and power and winning incredible victories. But the most significant part of God's promise to Abraham is yet to materialize. He had no child, no heir. Our minds are fairly easy to convince. 
But you know, the, the heart just doesn't listen. You can reason with the heart, but the heart doesn't respond to reason. You can show it logic, but the heart does not respond to logic. We can convince our minds. Our minds oftentimes know the truth. But our heart has dreams. Our heart has longings. Our heart has a vision of all the things that we'd long to be. And week after week and month after month and year after year, they had to live out the reality. You know, we're not getting any younger here. It's not getting easier. It's getting more difficult. So our passage this morning is when God came to Abram, what one writer called the long dark night of the soul, the time when Abram had descended into doubt. And after he had won those incredible victories, after he had made the right choice in choosing the king of Salem and rejecting the king of Sodom, after these things, the Bible says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, though God himself has come here to give Abram a great vision, in his heart, Abram was filled with doubt. But God didn't talk to him and say, doubt not. He said, fear not. And the reason is because doubt and fear, and fear are just heads and tails of the same coin. They go together. Fear is the, is the result, but doubt is where it comes from. And God goes to that issue uh, with Abram, his fear. Fear not. He had won a battle, you see, with the kings of the east, and he had rejected the king of Sodom. And no doubt he was aware that there could be long-term consequences of both of those things. But God said to him, Abram, I'm your shield. I've got your back. I'm protecting you. And not one thing in Abram rose up to express any doubt about that. He had seen example after example after example how that God was taking care of him and how that God was providing for him and, and God was going to be his protection. That was clear to him. But when he said, Abram, I am your exceeding great reward, and a part of him, no doubt, knew that was true, just like we know that's true. We know that uh, having God and having a real and vibrant relationship with God is greater than all the treasures of the earth. Abram had turned down the wealth of Sodom, but here was God. He had this relationship with God. I'm your exceeding great reward. And that was his greatest treasure, and it is our greatest treasure. Amen? And yet knowing that on one level doesn't mean that somehow from time to time we lose sight of that. The world is full of people who are trading their relationship with God for the devil's baubles and trinkets. Jesus asked a very good question when he said, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? We might expect it to go the other way. What will you get? But Jesus knows better than that. You see, the devil really has nothing to offer. And whenever we make a deal with, our devil, with the devil, with our soul hanging in the balance, it's all about what we give up. What we get is meaningless. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, we should be satisfied with the presence of God and the promises of God. But 
Abraham, very much like our own experience sometimes, tells us that though we know this on one level, that our relationship with God is the most precious treasure that we have. And, and if we have that in the presence of God and the, the promises of God, then we have enough. Though on one level we know that. On another level, the heart level, the dreams and desires are set on their fulfillment. And so God appears to him and he brings back to him those promises. And the essence of God's covenant with Abraham was about the seed, the seed of Abraham. We'll see that today. And about the land. Those two things were tied together. God had a purpose uh, for the land and, and God had a plan for the seed and, and that plan of the seed was tied to God's purpose for the land those two things were, were tied together we'll see that today but Abraham is doubting both of them and so in his fear and in that darkness God comes to him and he affirms to him then first of all that promise of the seed when God brought Abram out in verse 5 of our text and said, Look to the heavens and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it for righteousness. Now, Abram was saying, Lord, what will you give me? What, what will you show me? Since I go childless, how can I be sure that this promise is going to come? What had seemed difficult many years before now seemed impossible. He, Abram was already in his 80s and, and Sarah was not very far behind. The promise of a reward then can seem pretty hollow when month after month they faced the disappointment that Sarah had no child. Month after month, year after year. So Abram says to God, God, look. <laughs> hey, look. You ever prayed to God like that? Sure you have. I have too. God, you might not be aware of this. <laughs> Just in case you hadn't noticed. Hey, God, let me, let me point something out to you here. Huh? Look. Look, God. I, I don't know if you remember, but I have no children, he says. Can, can you hear the ten years of, of going without knowing and believing without seeing in that question? Can you hear the anguish in his heart? Lord, what will you give me since I have no children? Have you ever been angry at somebody and denied being angry? How'd that work out for you? Let me be. Huh? I do it all the time. I mean, everybody's been married longer than about a month. Uh, <laughs> know, knows what it's like. <clears throat> what do you mean? I, what are you mad about? I'm not mad. And don't you dare tell me that I am. I'm not. I might be mildly aggravated, but I'm not angry. Now, come on. We deny it sometimes. We do it a lot with God. It doesn't work any better with Him than it works for our spouse. When we are, the good news is that God is a whole lot easier to talk to. Amen. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, Nancy's out today with her mom. Y'all know that. Y'all saw it in her prayer list. I'm not, I'm not just talking behind her back. Uh, uh, she's really easy to talk to. I, I shouldn't have said that probably. But uh, I think it's kind of hard for all of us really to express our feelings, even with the people that we love the most. 
let me tell you something. I'm, I'm very thankful that this passage is in the Bible where God was there saying, Abram, I've made you these promises. And Abram, just in the anguish of his heart, said, look, God, you've given me no children. What good are all these promises and all these blessings and all this wealth? What's it going to get to it? I have no child. If you're upset with God or frustrated or disappointed, he already knows it. So you might as well talk to him about it. He's not intimidated by that. And I love that God then took him outside and God said to Abraham, look. <laughs> Remember Abraham said, look. So God says, look. Look at the sky and see the stars. One of the best things about being at deer camp, those of us who goes with deer camp, if you're out in a country in a place where there's no lights and just miles out from in the middle of nowhere, one of the greatest things about that is the sky. Look out on a clear night and the sky is full of stars. And that's what Abraham saw there in the darkness. Nothing to interfere with that at night. There in the darkness then God said look at the sky and can you count the stars? Well as a matter of fact the astronomer Dorit Hoffeld of Yale University compiled the famous Yale Bright Star Catalog some years ago, and it included, by the marvel of modern technology, every star from the dimmest star that the average eye can see on the darkest night. That's a level 6.5 star. You see, the, the higher the number goes, the darker, the dimmer the star is. The brightest stars are actually in the negative on the Yale uh, Bright Star Catalog. 9,096 stars are visible from earth. I was shocked. I would have thought the number was much higher. 9,096 stars are visible since you can only see half from any hemisphere at any time because, of course, we've only got the hours of darkness to see the stars. Uh, you can only see about 4,500 and change. At any given time. But you see, the emphasis to Abraham was not how many stars he could see. Because Abraham was going to have a lot more than 9,000 descendants. The point that God makes to him is, Abraham, can you count them? And of course the answer is, no, you can't. Uh, number one, you can't keep up with how many you have actually counted and which ones you've missed. And you'll get some and get over here and you'll lose count. Go back. Now, where was I? It's going to get daylight before you get done. And it's only these marvelous gadgets that we've invented over the last few years that has enabled us to be able to count the stars. Abraham couldn't. He couldn't. And, of course, beyond the stars that we can see is an innumerable number so far of stars that we only estimate. But the point is that when God said this, Abraham believed. Abraham believed. And it was at this time then that God chose to reveal that great principle of justification by faith. 
Because he says, And Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was counted unto him, accounted unto him for righteousness. That is the great principle of justification by faith. And it's all over the Bible. Romans chapter 4 and verse 2. For if Abraham, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Galatians 3 and 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now don't misunderstand. Abraham had been uh, following God by faith for a long time. The Bible's not telling us that he was saved at this point in time. But it is telling us that at this point in time was where God chose to reveal that great, great principle of justification by faith. The word justify means to declare righteous according to law in a practical way. It means that we have been made right with God, that we are righteous in the sight of God, that our sins have been paid for by another, and that God has taken the righteousness of Christ and placed it on us. And it is not on the basis of our works. It is not on the basis of our performance. It is a basis on the completed work of Jesus Christ. For by grace, the Bible says, are you saved through faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. God didn't make us read all the way to the book of Revelation to figure that out. He puts it here in Genesis 15. It's at the front of the book. Not the end. Being right with me, God says, is about believing in the promise of Jesus Christ. It was not coincidental that this happened at the point when God said to Abraham, So shall thy seed be. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us what that meant. Now in Abraham, and now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ? You see, the promise of the seed of Abraham was none other than the promise of Jesus Christ. Abraham believed, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. When God said, look to the heavens and see all of these stars, he was showing Abraham that every star was a reminder of the incredible power of Almighty God who made them and who keeps them in their place. And the same power then of God that was able to put every single one of those stars in the sky and keep them there is the same God then who had made that promise concerning the seed of Abraham and the same God who makes that promise to us today. Think about that the next time you go out and look up in the stars. God wants us to think about the principle of redemption. No wonder the psalmist said the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Specifically, it is the promise of the seed of Abraham. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the fact that God and God alone has the power to make that promise and to keep it. 
God's message to Abraham was this. I've got everything under control. It's all moving on schedule. Can you count the stars? The answer was no, he couldn't. Neither could he count his descendants. But he was looking far beyond Abram's physical descendants to his spiritual descendants of which all of us who are saved in this building today and all who are saved or ever will be saved are counted in that number. The seed. Then there was the promise of the land. Verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this and this land and to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now, God reminded Abram about the promise of the son. And now he reminds him that he has a particular promise for that in the land. You see, theoretically... Abraham and Sarah could have had a child in Ur. They could have had a child in Haran. They could have had any chi- a child in Egypt. They could have had a child at any point in between. But the fact is that God linked the promise of the child with the promise of the land. He has a purpose for this child in this land. The word God used is intriguing. I brought you out to inherit this land. He didn't bring him there to buy the land. He didn't bring him there to conquer the land. That would come later. He said, I bring you here to inherit the land. And that's an important principle about this land, a promise that God brings to the mind of his people again and again and again. After 10 years of walking by faith, he couldn't see that he was any closer to receiving any of the things that God had promised him. The seed didn't look any closer. The land didn't look any closer. In fact, they looked further away. God had promised Abraham that he would be blessed and that he would be a blessing. And yet there's been a famine and and, and all that mess down in Egypt. And, And then he came back and there's been a battle after battle it seemed. He's fighting battles that he never intended to fight, never knew he would fight. God had promised him a blessing and instead he's getting a battle. And that happens to us sometimes. Uh, We get married thinking that marriage is going to be a blessing. And it is a blessing. But then it's a battle too. We have kids. We think, man, this is going to be such a blessing. And it is a blessing. But it's a battle too. We have a job. And we think, man, I've got a new job. This is going to be so great. And it is so great. It's such a blessing. But then there's a battle we didn't expect. Maybe start a business. Man, it's going to be such a great thing to own my own business. Yeah, and it is. I'm being blessed. But there's a battle too. It happens to us all the time. And it's one thing when the battle is for a day. But when the days turn into months and then years, it's hard not to doubt that things are ever going to change. It's hard not to doubt that God is really going to bring about those blessings we anticipated dreamed of Abraham needed a little reassurance so God said to him verse 9 bring me a three year old heifer you cattle farmers could tell us real quick that's about a thousand twelve hundred pound animal is that right three year old heifer three year old female goat three year old ram a turtle dove and a young pigeon 
He brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite of each other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And what we see here was very common in Abram's day. When you made a, a covenant with another person, business transaction of any kind, it was not uncommon then for both parties to bring out an animal. And they would do exactly what is described here. They would cut the animal in two, and then both parties would walk between it. What they were doing was establishing what was known as a blood covenant. And the rule was... <laughs> If you violate the principles of this covenant, then what has been done to these animals then are going to be done to you. You've agreed to that. Uh, basically, in the Old Testament, you see, if you made a deal with somebody and promised to pay and didn't pay, they repossessed you. Okay? That, that's what it was all about. It was very common, very not unusual, although it seems unusual to us. The presence of the five animals that he brought, and I wish I had time today to, to just preach a sermon about how all of those five animals were used in the sacrificial system, and all of them pointed to Jesus Christ, but really that's all I need to say. Those animals pointed to Jesus Christ, like all the Old Testament sacrifices did. Uh, the, they, they attracted the buzzards. Uh, Abraham had to stay there. He couldn't just leave it out and go back to his tent. He had to stay there right in the middle of that bloody spectacle. Until sundown, and God caused a deep sleep to fall on Abram. Same exact word that he used when he called the deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he took a rib from him and made Eve. And the point being, of course, that since both Adam and Abraham were asleep, they had nothing to do with what God was doing. Okay, God put them out. They were over here. And whatever was done then was being done by the power of Almighty God. And that's a good thing. I mean, every one of us here today knows that if God would have left Adam awake, he would have been giving him all kinds of advice about what to make for Eve. I mean, you know it. You know he'd have done it. <clears throat> no, he didn't have any say in anything. Abraham didn't have any part in this at all. In his sleep, then, Abram felt horror. And he felt that great darkness. Verse 13, then God spoke. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, in his sleep then, as God speaks, God tells Abram, you know, what's going on in your life, Abram, is not just about you. Nine generations of your family and then beyond will experience the power of this promise I'm making to you right now. You see, Abraham had waited for the, in the promised land for the promised sons, but his descendants would wait 400 years. 
to be delivered from bondage and brought out with great wealth. The same land of Egypt, of course, they were going to that Abraham himself had gone to and come out wealthy. But it wasn't just about Abraham. And let's remember this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not just about us either. You see, Abraham's walk of faith, Abraham's choice of the right king, Abram listening to God and learning from God, Abram following God by faith, Abram going back to Bethel and getting his family back in the house of God, Abram serving God wasn't just about him. But generation after generation after generation after generation, God mentions nine, but who knows how many there's been. Generation after generation of your family can be affected by your faith. Isn't that good news? Abram believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. But Abram, it means much more than just what it means to you. You see, what Abraham perceived then as a delay was not going to have anything to do with God's promise of his blessing. God had already affirmed that he was going to bring to him the child just as he promised that it would be born from him and not somebody else. And uh, later he's going to include Sarah in the promise. We'll see that in a few weeks. But for now, he said, this is just about you. Yes, this blessing is going to come. You're going to be a blessing. You will live and die in a ripe old age. That's good news. And He'd be blessed throughout all of his life. What Abraham perceived as a delay then was not going to keep him from experiencing the blessings of God. What Abraham perceived as a delay then was also an act of God's grace. Because he said the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. Remember, these were the same people who had aligned themselves with Abram. And God was going to give them 400 years to learn from Abram and to think about that testimony and maybe turn from their idols and serve the living God. 400 years was an act of grace that God specifically mentions the people, the Amorites. Unfortunately... They did not avail themselves of that opportunity and they got further and further and further away into their iniquity. Then there was one more thing. Verse 17, it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now remember, the ancient practice would have been for both God and Abram to walk through between the pieces. But this was not about Abram. This was all about God. What God was doing was showing that his great purpose of redemption that tied the promise of the seed of Abram to this land And it was going to happen in this place. And it would happen in no other place. That this was a work of redemption that God himself must undertake. And not one iota of the work was accomplished by him. How did this play out? Remember that God said, Abram, you will inherit this land. In Leviticus chapter 25... God would point out to them after they, many years later through Moses, he would say, the land shall not be sold forever for the land is mine. That's what God said to him. 
This land is mine. And it shall not be sold forever because it's mine. Now, if you're going to receive something by inheritance, what has to happen, brothers and sisters? Are you with me today? Hang in here. This is important. What has to happen? Somebody has to die. The owner. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us exactly that in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Do you understand why, God, why Abraham had a problem here? If this land is yours, God, and I'm going to receive it as an inheritance, how? Can such a thing happen? Because God would have to die. It would be many centuries before the writer of the book of Hebrews would tell us that we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death. Why did God become a man? Because only as a man could he suffer death. And those Abraham taking those animals and splitting them apart. Having to stay there. He couldn't leave because here were all these things trying to attack that sacrifice. He had to turn it away. And by the time that day was over then, lying down right in the middle of that stuff. I mean, Abram was a bloody mess by the time that day was over. Why did Abram have to do that? See, we can look ahead many years later from our perspective and we see so clearly what Abram was seeing in a vision, what Abram was seeing in a type. You see, Abraham was standing there for what his seed was going to do, what his physical inheritance were going to do to his seed. This represented Jesus Christ. And it was Abraham of all people who would end up covered with the blood of those sacrifices as he lived out in a figure told ahead of time what the people of Israel said on the day that they rejected Jesus. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And you see Abram standing there. He's passed out now. <laughs> but there in, his, in the darkness as he's dreaming, he feels the horror. Where did the horror come from? No doubt the horror of knowing what was going to happen? What his people were going to do? And of seeing the horror. Listen, Jesus told us that Abraham saw his day. On several different occasions actually, but he certainly saw it here. And when he saw what that redemption was going to cost, when he saw 
all of the purpose of God and the plan of God, not only for the seed, but for the land and what it was going to take then for them to receive that promised inheritance. Then our mind springs forward to that time of horrible darkness on that hill called Mount Calvary where that bloody seed of redemption was actually played out. Where the seed of Abraham died for the sins of the whole world, including yours and mine. And as we think about that time of darkness where the bloody scene of redemption was played out, we then stand with Abraham. God has promised us victory. But that victory comes at a great price. And let's remind ourselves this morning that though we would very like, very much like, to be able to pass the blame to the Jews and pass the blame to the Romans for the death of Jesus Christ, the fact is that he died for my sins and he died for yours. And it was every bit as much my sin that butchered him to death that day as it was yours. We were... Standing there with bloody Abraham, yes. And what's the point of all this? Well, the point is that through Jesus Christ, God has promised us incredible victory. But the victory is not ours, it's His. And even though we've been promised these victories, here we find ourselves fighting battles we never intended to fight. God says that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, and yet we still feel the blow of every single hit that knocks us down, every failure, every time we turn aside, every time we take a lick in the battle. We feel the pain so acutely. And we might wonder, God, you have promised me victory. But I'm not living out this victory. And every time God is going to do to us exactly what he did to Abram long ago and point us to Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary because it is there that our victory is played out and it is there that our victory is made secure. It is not our performance. It is not our experience. But it is the finished work of Calvary. When he cried out on Calvary's crest, it is finished. Then the work, the work, the work, the work of redemption was done. What do we do? Believe. Oh, those great theologians, Bill and Gloria Gaither, probably put it as well as anybody. When they said, I believe. In a hill called Mount Calvary, I'll believe whatever the cost. And when time has surrendered and earth is no more, I'll still cling to that old rugged cross. you're saved today you're saved because at some point in time you clung to the old rugged cross you understood that Jesus died for you and by faith you believed just like Abram believed long ago you felt the horror 
the horror of conviction that comes from knowing that Jesus died for your sins. But he was buried. And the good news was that he didn't stay buried. He rose again so that he gives us then the promise of eternal life. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Dear friends, today that can be true in your life. There's never been a time where you believed on Jesus Christ, where you put your trust in him, where you stated that to him. Although state, and the Bible talks about that and about confessing him. With the heart, man believeth, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Has there been that time where you believed on what Jesus did on the old rugged cross? Receive that for yourself and put your trust then in him, asking him to be your savior. That's how you're saved. Saved just like Abraham was saved. We know a lot more about it than probably he did. He just believed in the Lord, the Bible says. We believe too. And we're saved. When we're saved, we confess it. First with our mouth, and then we confess it in that beautiful picture of baptism that we all saw today. So we stand before the Lord. Not condemned. Righteous. Because of Jesus Christ. If you've been saved but haven't been baptized, you need to be. If you're saved and baptized, let me ask you. Is maybe today is the first time you've been at Bethel in a long time. Uh, first time you've been at the house of God. Say, I thought I was at Faith Baptist. You are, but this is a house of God. But it's not just about attending. It's about belonging, making that commitment. Have, have you made that membership commitment to be involved in that beautiful institution called the New Testament Church? I'd love to talk to you about how you can be saved, why you should follow the Lord in baptism, why you need a church home, and then how we serve him and share this incredible news with a watching world. Let's stand together, please.